Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and this is your season finale, season four finale. I'm going to be speaking with Ed Shohat, who's a wonderful, wonderful lawyer here in Miami, a friend, a colleague, someone I've worked closely with. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing Ed talk about one of the biggest uh, drug trials in the history of the United States, the Carlos Later trial. It was a seven month ordeal, pretty insane to be in trial for seven months. You're going to hear about how the government called 29 snitches, how the prosecutor had a nickname of Mad Dog, how Ed, as a young lawyer in the 80s, uh, prepared and took on this uh, case that was all-consuming. And we'll talk about trial strategy as we always do. It's been a wonderful season. I want to thank all of you for listening, for your emails, for your comments, for sending this to friends and family. It's really been a lot of fun. I'm preparing now for season five and getting your recommendations on who I should speak with. So keep them coming. We're going to get right into this interview now with Ed. And at the end of the interview, I'll give you the Florida CLE code if you're a Florida lawyer, so you can get credit for season four. Thanks again for listening to For the Defense. I'm David Marcus. Okay, we're back uh, with the wonderful Ed Showhat today. Ed is not only one of the great lawyers of our time, but he's also a great friend of mine. And so it's my real honor and pleasure to get to speak with him about one of the huge drug cases, drug trials um, from the 1980s, the Carlos Later trial. Welcome to the show, Ed. Uh, thank you for having me, David. Uh, it's it's not always nice being with you. So, so this trial, you know, was a little before I started following um, cases and trials, but I've been reading so much about it. It's the most wild case. Um, it's when drug cases were at their height, uh, sort of the bread and butter of criminal defense lawyers, especially in Miami. Um, how did you get this case, Car- the Carlos Later case? Can you tell us a little about who he was and how you got the case? Well, uh, let's start with who Carlos Later was. We were talking about an era in uh, law enforcement when the war on drugs was at its height. Uh, in the uh, bar in South Florida, drug cases were, were, the, were the practice, essentially, and the courts were flooded with drug cases. But the United States government had been frustrated for years because they had not been able to secure any of the infamous Medellin cartel defendants uh, for trial in the United States. And Carlos later uh, became the only Medellin cartel defendant ever to be tried in a United States court. The, The government would constantly say that the cartel was responsible at the time for more than 80% of the cocaine that was sold in the United States, that was imported and sold in the United States. And it was an enormous coup that the uh, government of Colombia essentially became so fed up with later's political attacks uh, that they literally turned him over to the USDEA at a point in time when there was no extradition treaty. So I gotta, I gotta ask you about this. So, so 
so that people know, um, you know, actually the Colombian drug lords um, get this extradition stopped between Colombia and the United States, totally stopped. And then Colombia started thinking about extraditing again. Um, so at the time that later was sent to the U.S., there was no extradition treaty and, and the U.S. hadn't couldn't get them pursuant to those means. So how does how does that all happen? How does later get turned over and why does he get turned over from Colombia? Later, later was a major thorn in the side of the Colombian government because he would go on the news and create his own videos and attack uh, unremittingly the government of Colombia uh, for extraditing its citizens to the United States. And then the uh, seminal event occurred, which was the attack on the Supreme Court building in Colombia, and it was blown. It was blown up. And, and uh, interestingly enough, the scene of that explosion became the background noise of every news report about the later trial in Jacksonville during the trial. Um, and, that, that, and that doesn't sound like such fair press uh, uh, when when you're trying a case when they're showing there was the no court. effort in Jacksonville to create fair press. <laughs> right. Right. Not at all. What, why was the case? I mean, why in Jacksonville, of all places? I mean, these a lot of these drug cases. Well, were let, in me, Miami. let me let me take you back. So the Colombian government. Calls the DEA, puts him on it, hands him over to the DEA and he comes to the United States. Uh, Later's family uh, retained Jose Quinone, a terrific Miami lawyer who's still practicing here in Miami, one of the best lawyers you will ever uh, see to defend later. I guess they conducted some sort of a beauty contest amongst lo local lawyers. They wanted a Spanish speaker. And certainly in that day and age, among the Spanish-speaking members of the criminal defense bar in Miami, Quinone was the, one of the, if not the premier lawyer. And Quinone contacted me. And I had had some experience with Jose before that, but Jose contacted me to co-counsel with him, and that's how I got into the case. And uh, we, we were essentially retained by Lader's family, actually his brother, Guillermo, uh, actually retained us. And, and, and we then went off to Marion, Illinois, which was the supermax, to meet Jose for the first time, seven stories under the ground. It's crazy. So, so I just got to stop you there for a second. I mean, all these drug cases were going on. They hadn't really started going after lawyers uh, yet in Miami. There, there was a time when they did. Was there any concern about taking later's money or or getting involved in the case, or that what really wasn't a concern at the time. You know, the uh, the, the 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 saw at the time was that, they, that there was no more crowded place than the American Airlines uh, gate for the first flight to Jacksonville after later was raided. No more more criminal lawyers were seen in one place at one time, <laughs> and then at the gate to get to Jacksonville to see to see later. But he wasn't in Jacksonville; he was in. Marion, and that's where Jose and I saw him. But the answer to your question directly is, remember that the federal money laundering statute didn't exist. It was put on the books in 1987. Before that, it was the Bank Secrecy Act and structuring uh, deposits and withdrawals and $10,000 amount, but there was no money laundering statute. This was 1987, the same year 
that the money laundering statutes went on the books and it was that those money laundering statutes which started to generate attention to lawyers conduct in the years that followed. So no, we didn't have any concerns and besides which, uh, without getting into too many details, we weren't paid in cash. We were paid in normal arm's length transaction through the family. So so this was not a concern of ours. And and when you visit somebody in a supermax or even any de- sort of detention to prepare for a trial, it's got to be tough. I mean, I, I have a case now where my client is detained. It's so much harder to prepare for a case. And I imagine in your case where the security and the supermax, I mean, how do you prepare for a case when a guy's detained like that? Uh, it was virtually impossible, but yeah. we prevailed on the judge to prevail on the marshal service to move uh, later from the supermax to a place uh, arguably more suitable for meeting with him to prepare for trial. And so they moved him to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. And that was one of the worst places in the world to have to prepare for a trial. Initially, when Jose and I would visit him there, they would actually make us visit him in his cell within the institution. The institution at that point had effectively been shut down except for insane people who would scream at the top of their lungs and wail during our entire meetings. We then managed to prevail on the warden to let us use the visiting room at Atlanta. And he eventually agreed and would move later into the uh, visiting room of the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which wasn't being used. It was always empty. And uh, Jose and I were uh, forced to travel to Atlanta, go down to the institution, and visit with him for several hours. The only silver lining was there was a terrific barbecue joint a few <laughs> blocks from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which Jose and I would enjoy before getting our cab back to the airport. So, so now you and Jose, this is early in your career, right? You're in your thir- in your thirties. Yeah, uh, oh. this is ni- this is 1987. I was 40 years old. 40. So, so I mean, to have a case like this at 40 is is really unheard of. And I mean, it must have been just a fun ride to get a case like this so early in the career. Well, I, I don't know that the word fun would apply, <laughs> would apply to it, uh, David. But I would say that it was uh, a wonderful overall wonderful professional experience having to deal with all the dynamics of a case that became uh, the cause celeb for the justice department the media was incessant uh they you know the idea of even getting a glimpse of carlos later the infamous carlos later uh partners with pablo escobar jorge ochoa fabio ochoa uh, in a U.S. courtroom was almost overwhelming for the media, and, and there was no there were no photographers allowed in the courtrooms, and no videos in the courtroom, no news from the courtroom. So it, it became quite the circus. So, uh, so tell time. me, tell me why Jacksonville? Why why is this case brought to to that uh, place? That's instead a, of- that's a very interesting question, and, and here's how I, how well, how and why that happened. Uh, As you may know, uh, later was the transportation manager for the Medellin cartel. He ran his business 
transporting the cocaine off of Norman's Key in the Bahamas, an island in the middle of the Exuma chain. That island was chosen because it had a 3,000 foot airstrip on the island and virtually every plane imaginable that they might want to use could go in and out of that airstrip. When Later and his gang commandeered that island, there was a group of marijuana smugglers on the island. uh, The Ward family, Ed Ward and his family and, and their group were running marijuana off of that island and Later and his gang chased them off the island. And as the story goes, as I think Ed Ward testified to from the witness stand, when they were flying off the island after later threatened later and his people allegedly threatened their lives to take over the island they swore they would get payback on later and they got payback by going to the federal authorities in jacksonville i believe getting virtual immunity from their cells for years of marijuana smuggling i don't remember now exactly how that worked out for them, but they then became witnesses, and that's why the case was located in the Middle District of Florida, Jacksonville Division. Fascinating. And, you know, when you take on a case like this, Ed, you know, the odds are obviously just enormous against the defense. It's 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 an impossible case, um, but it's a case you have to try. There's no, it's not like you can, you can really deal on a case like this when you have the biggest uh, uh, target drug dealer that they've ever caught. No, they, they offered no deals. Right. So, so this is going to be a trial. It's, it's an impossible trial. I always am fascinated about the psychology. Do you tell the client in these impossible cases, um, we have a shot to win? Do you, how do you keep his hopes up um, on a case like this when you're visiting him in the supermax, uh, you're visiting him under such tight security, Every all the forces are against them, the media, the prosecutor, the judge, how do you keep his hopes up? Later, later was not a, uh, a stupid individual. He was a smart, intelligent individual. He knew what he was up against. We were scrupulously honest with him, uh, made it clear to him that uh, the government was literally get, giving get out of jail free cards to everybody they could find in the federal prison system who had ever done business with later and that this was going to be a Herculean task. I I don't think it's fair to say, David, that we went out of our way to keep his hopes up. What we made clear to him, and which which Jose was wonderful at, is we're gonna put the boxing gloves on and we're gonna go in there and punch and punch and punch every way we know how to do, and we'll just have to see how it comes out. That's what we did. I love that. Um, it's and that's a good way. As long as the client feels right that you're fighting and punching, it's so much better than than uh, when the client feels that the person is not fighting, just rolling over. That gives the the client confidence. I came away, David, feeling that we gave as good as we got. <laughs> right. After seven months of trial, we punched back as hard as we possibly could. Could but got to remember something. The government called 29 accomplice witnesses. Other people call them snitches. 29 accomplice witnesses, which Bob Merkel, the mad dog Merkel prosecutor, head of the the U.S. attorney of the Middle District of Florida, bragged was the largest number of accomplice witnesses 
ever called at that point in a federal criminal case. It's crazy. So you, there's a lot to break down there. But but before we get into all those different things, let me ask you first about the opening. Um, I think you gave the opening in, in the case, Ed. And, I did. And, you know, one of the things that we always want to do in opening is try to humanize our guy, even even in a case like this, where where the government's making him out to be the, the biggest drug lord uh, ever. You want to you want to humanize him. And so you said, I'm going to call him Joe. Um, instead of Carlos, and I, I read some of the news articles about that. Tell me, tell me what's going on there, and the thinking about that. Well, you, you're you're exactly right. Uh, we were we were in an environment where uh, the individual had been vilified every possible way, and I, I don't remember uh, a lot. I probably forgot more about this trial than I'll ever remember at this point <laughs> yeah. in 1987, but I don't remember a lot about the opening statement that I give, but I do remember because you just reminded me that I talked about calling him Joe. I, I think I talked a little bit about about his family and uh, that, that in, in, in many respects, he's just a regular guy like all of us. Uh, and, and that, that he was going to be lied about up, up one side and down another for the next several months in this trial. And the, the jury has to keep an open mind about that. You also mentioned the prosecutor, this, the U.S. attorney Merkel. And I did re- read what a colorful guy, Mad Dog was his nickname. I don't know what you can tell me about him and, and how he got that nickname and what kind of prosecutor he was like, but he sounded like a character. Well, um, my my remembrances of Bob Merkel are not uh, of the best, uh, and, and 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 you're going to find some of the, the aspects of this probably a little funny uh, or strange. Uh, Merkel well, Merkel got the name the nickname Mad Dog completely independent of the Carlos later case. That was a name he earned as the U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Florida, and and probably even before that. Uh, but the way he handled this case was so dogged and so tunnel visioned that he was in many ways literally impossible to deal with. He had a co-counsel, a lawyer, another lawyer from the Middle District Tampa office who was in Jacksonville to try the case and who I think also had a residence in Jacksonville. His name was Hans Mueller and he was of German descent as was later, which became a running theme uh, throughout the case between Carlos and Hans Mueller. I'll tell you about that if you ask, but Mueller was the one that we dealt with. We stayed as far away from Merkel as we possibly could, Jose and I, because Mueller you could talk to and, and, you could, and he would cooperate with you, get you what you needed, that kind of thing, but not Merkel. And the thing that, one of the things I said, this is gonna sound a little silly, that made me really angry at Merkel is when the case was over, the verdict was in, Carlos was convicted. He goes to the first floor of the federal courthouse in Jacksonville and he holds a news conference and he beats his chest as if he did the entire case by himself. He doesn't mention Mueller, who handled as many witnesses and did all the nuts and bolts work. And you know what that's like yep. for a prosecutor. Yep. Did all the nuts and bolts work. And doesn't mention Doug Driver, the DEA agent who built the entire case. And by the way, who was a very decent individual. And, and person, doesn't even mention them. So you get along with the uh, case agent and the other and the other prosecutor? I got along. I like to think I got along very well with Doug Driver. Jose and I got along with him. He was a uh, terrific 
DEA agent who went to unbelievable lengths to put together a case, but a lot of the evidence just dropped in his lap. And I'll tell you about that later. A lot of very important evidence just dropped in his lap, but, but he did a tremendous job in putting that together and was always a gentleman, as was Mueller. So tell me, tell me about Mueller and, and, uh, and your client uh, and the German background. Now, well, as you may or may not know, later was a German citizen living in Colombia, family from Germany. It's, his name is the German later, L-E-H-D-E-R. And uh, he felt that he had some, something in common with Mueller. And every day before court, when Jose and I would get there, later would already be sitting at the defense table. And Jose would come in and we'd sit down and then in comes Mueller with a cart, a push cart, with all of the day's exhibits and whatever else is on the push cart. And later would say something to him like, hey, Hans, I see Merkel's got you doing all the work today. <laughs> I love it. He would constantly jive with Mueller. And to Mueller's credit, he would engage Carlos in good humor and professional in a professional way. Love it. Love it. Now, so part of this, you mentioned Norman's Key in the Bahamas. Um, did you ever visit and check it out and, and tell us about Norman's Key? Yes. Uh, Jose and I felt it was important to, to see the uh, location of the crime, so to speak. So in the middle of the summer, 1987, we made arrangements with the government of the Bahamas to fly to Norman's Key. We, as, as I recall it, we, we rented two mopeds in Nassau, put them on a small plane, and flew from Nassau to Norman's Key, probably a 20-minute flight at best and landed on Norman's Key. And when we got there, there was a uh, Bahamian Defense Forces plane there. And there, there was a single police officer carrying an automatic weapon over his shoulder. And he had no moped. And the island is not small. Remember, there's a 3,000 foot airstrip and then the rest of the island. So Jose and I went around on our mopeds visiting the various houses on the island. And interestingly, it's, it, it, the island has these bluffs on it, these hills. And on the top of the various hills, as you go along there, are the various houses where each member of this group would have a house and later had the biggest house. It was on the bend away from the airstrip. And we would, Jose and I would drive down the, the airstrip to get to the various parts. And this poor guy in the middle of the summer was running behind us with his gun following us from place to place. And finally, at some point, we felt sorry for him and we got him on the back of one of our mopeds or something, let him ride with us. I mean, it's it's like an episode from Narcos, uh, you, <laughs> it you is. know, with the defense lawyers on their mopeds going around this island. It is. Uh, it, 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 it's quite a place. And, and one of the aspects of the island was that uh, later had bribes out all over the Bahamas. God knows how many people he had bribed. But one of the aspects of this was that the Bahamians would make a pretense of investigating these DEA rumors and requests for what was going on on the island over the years that later was there. And they would raid, in quotes, Norman's Key, but later would get advance word of the raids. 
And so he'd have like a day or two to prepare for the raids. And they had built these under the underground lockers in the middle of the island, and all the drugs and all the guns and everything. And when the BDF, the Bahamian Defense Force, would raid the island, it looked like they were all on vacation there in their in their net shirts and shorts and flip-flops laying out in the sun uh, and there would be nothing they'd find nothing not even not even a marijuana would be found in any of these right houses. and and i read what, what's this about norman the dog is that anything to do with norman's uh, k well norman the dog took down the medellin cartel and carlos later uh here's the story the bookkeeper on of, of uh, Carlos Lader's Norman's Key operation was the only other defendant who ultimately went on trial with him, Jack Carlton Reed. Jack Reed was a Canadian that somehow had hooked up with Lader. I don't remember how, but he was on Norman's Key with Lader, and he was responsible for keeping the books. And here's how Jack Reed would keep the books. He hung a sling between two trees and would swing between the trees at the front end of the island, the beginning of the airstrip. And every time a hammock and every time a plane would come in, Reed would get up with a Polaroid camera and take a picture of the plane landing and of the tail number on the plane. And he would take that picture and throw it in a briefcase. And then when the planes took off to deliver the coke, going to the United States, the smaller planes, he would take pictures of the, those planes taking off and those tail numbers. And those were the books that he kept for what was happening on Norman's Key. Now, he also had, and kept in that briefcase, a number of ledgers. And he had one more thing. He had Norman. Norman was his golden retriever. And he named him after Norman's Key, Norman the dog. And uh, he would swing in his hammock all day, smoking his pot or whatever, <laughs> and taking his pictures, and Norman would lay there. Now, when they got chased off the island, which eventually happened, they actually got word that the BDF was coming to run them off the island. They wore out their welcome with Lyndon Pindling, I guess, on the Bahamian government. And when they left, Reed went, as I understand it, Reed went to Canada with Norman and later went to Columbia. At one point, Norman got worms and a vet in Canada told Reed that there was only one doctor in the world that knew how to treat the particular strand of worms uh -oh. that Norman got. And he was a veterinarian professor at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. So Reed charters a plane, as I understand it, puts Norman on the plane and flies to Auburn, Alabama to see this veterinarian. And he took his briefcase with all the pictures, his oh. ticket out of jail. Oh. He never went anywhere without it, except he made a big mistake. Unbeknownst to Reed, at least initially, when they landed at the airport in Auburn, Alabama, the DEA was conducting a surveillance. They weren't investigating Reed. They were investigating cocaine smuggling at Auburn University into the campus. Oh. And they had a surveillance going on at the Auburn, Alabama little private airport there. And one of the agents recognized Reed when he got off of his bases. That's Jack Reed. He's later's partner. You can't make this up. 
we've been looking for him. And so there is Reed with Norman and his briefcase heading for the veterinarian. Something spooked Reed. I don't know what it is. I never learned what it is. But when the veterinarian told Jack, you need to leave Norman with me. It's going to take me a month to treat him or so. And I'm going to treat him. I'm going to put him on a special diet. We'll call you when you can come and get him. Because if we don't, this worm is going to kill him. Jack just leaves Norman there, but for some reason he was spooked. And he says to the veterinarian, look, I've got to go somewhere. I'll come back and get it, but please hold my briefcase. And the veterinarian takes the briefcase and puts it under the steps in his veterinary office home that he had. A few minutes after Reed leaves and takes off his plane, the DEA shows up at the veterinarian's office. They had followed Reed there. Wow. The rest is history. Wow. They turned over the briefcase. In the briefcase was a complete record, photographic record, of every plane in and every plane out, plus ledger sheets, actual bookkeeping-type ledger sheets that Reed, that Reed had kept, and unfortunately, Government Exhibit 54. That was an expensive uh, uh, veterinarian visit. Yeah, jeez. But that's how Norman the dog took down Carlos later in the Medellin cartel. That's it, it, absolutely insane. What's government exhibit 54? Well, you know, from your vast experience, that every witness, accomplice witness, who's called to the witness stand, they introduce themselves and they're asked this question, do you see the defendant? Do you see Carlos later in the courtroom? Right. Well, Merkel, shrewd as he was, that's not exactly how he asked it. He would say to the witness after they identified, they, they talked about a little bit about later, he would say to them, well, look up on the book. He had a big screen in the courtroom. Look up at the screen and see if you recognize anybody in that picture. That picture was Government Exhibit 54. It was in Reed's briefcase. That was a picture of Carlos Later with a gorgeous Colombian girl. By the way, when the planes would land, they would bring drugs. They'd also bring beautiful women. To of course, they go okay. together. So it was later with a gorgeous Colombian girl, and she, he's wearing military fatigues, and he has an AK-47 slung over his shoulder, and the girl's finger is up his nose. <laughs> and, 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 and Merkel would say, do you recognize the man in that picture? Of course, the man sitting right there, right? <laughs> and wow. we objected. We objected. And Hal Melton would say, overruled, overruled. You, you need to have that uh, picture framed in your office. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't have a copy of it. <laughs> I, I bet you Merkel did uh, before he passed away. Um, yeah. so, so the trial, Ed, I think you mentioned lasted seven months. Um, Nearly I, seven, just short of seven. I, I mean, you're 40 years old. Your Your practice is growing. You have to head out of town from Miami, go up to Jacksonville. My son was born two weeks before the trial started. <laughs> I have a similar story. I, my, my middle daughter was born uh, on a Friday before I started a six-week, not a six-month trial. Um, but seven months in, in Jacksonville. So your family, your practice, everything sort of goes goes on secondary. You're, you're in if, trial. If it, wasn't, if it wasn't for my partner, Don Bierman, uh, and, and, and other partners that I had at the time, I think Neil Sonnet and I was, st was still in the same firm, it, 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 it would never have survived. Uh, that's, that's the truth. Nor would my marriage. But fortunately, 
we were allowed off every Friday. We only worked Monday through Thursday. There was no court on Friday. And Jose and I would get the last flight out on Thursday night. We were well-known seats 1A and 1B on that, <laughs> on that flight back to Miami. The stewardesses literally held it a few times for us because we were running just a little bit late and got that flight. And that went on for nearly seven months. See, in, 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 my, uh, in my trial in Savannah that went six weeks right after my Kate was born, the judge had trial on Saturday. So we had trial six days a week. I wasn't able to get home. It was, uh, oh my goodness. It was crazy. Um, oh, my goodness. But, but your trial, 115 witnesses. I think you mentioned 29 of them were snitches. Why, why did Merkel put on such a huge case? Was that a smart move, you think? Well, the, the proof is in the pudding. He got the conviction that got the conviction he wanted. He he treated it as if it were the pinnacle of his career. And, and, and as I recall, it wasn't long after that that he actually retired from the from the government and, and went out into private practice. And um, uh, he, he wanted that show trial and he had that show trial. That's what they wanted. I, 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 I even my own personal belief is uh, that, that there were decisions made within the Justice Department that that's exactly what they wanted to do. And they gave so many get out of jail free cards. Now, not every accomplice witness who testified immediately got out of jail, got their sentence reduced to nothing, but their sentences were cut way, way down. And a number of them uh, did get out of jail really quick after they testified against later. I mean, by calling all these witnesses, I read a, a bunch of the coverage about it, you know, Young and others. Um, that were called, it really gave you a lot to shoot at. It gave you guys something to do as well, because these guys, their stories changed. They had get out of jail free cards. When there's a, a case built on so many snitches, it's it's really a defense lawyer's dream. No, I mean, you got you and Jose must have had uh, 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 so much fun uh, just going after these guys. Well, we we did. Uh, uh, we We split up the cross-examinations. Frankly, uh, after a few months of doing it, it becomes old. And uh, you're, you're, you're literally struggling to try to keep the jury interested by changing your thematics for your cross. You can't do exactly the same cross 29 times. You've got to try to uh, liven things up a little bit and change things up a little bit. We, try, we tried to do that. The witnesses were incredibly colorful figures. Uh, they made a movie out of George Young's life called Blow. Uh, uh, played, but he was played by Johnny Depp in the movie. Uh, of course, the movie ended with him getting busted, but it didn't talk about that he snitched out later. That part the movie didn't go into. Who who played you? <laughs> they didn't go into the later trial in, in that in the in the movie. Uh, there is a documentary coming out now. I think you know about Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman, who just did the Willie and Sal Cocaine Cowboys doc, are doing Carlos later. Uh, that's coming up. Yeah, it's going to be great. And and uh, one of the reasons we're talking about this case as well. Let, let me ask you, uh, Young Young is interesting. You know, obviously, Johnny Depp played him in the movie and, and it stopped before the later trial. But you guys really beat him up at trial uh, and, and showed exposed him in a lot of ways. No, as I recall, he was witness number two. Uh, we the first snitch witness was a guy named Blankenship. Uh, Jose and I were really loaded up on on Jung, but there's a there's a story about Jung, which is extremely interesting that that is told in the movie. 
And the, the movie is really a large, to a large degree based on Jung's testimony in the later trial. Now, they don't use the name Jung, they're using pseudonyms. And of course, later refused to cooperate. So they had to use a pseudonym for later. I think it was George Lopez. I don't remember for sure now. Uh, but anyway, the, the, what people don't recognize, if they've seen the movie Blow, they know this, that in the early days of later's cocaine life, before the cartel, he was running his cocaine smuggling operation out of a condo in the Crystal House on Miami Beach. Miami residents will find that very interesting thinking that that beautiful condominium, which had very, which was populated by very wealthy Canadians and New Yorkers and Miami, Carlos Slater had a condo, an oceanfront condo, and he was receiving, cutting and distributing cocaine. Jung was his distributor in Los Angeles. And Jung was living in an oceanfront town, uh, uh, like duplex, right on Venice Beach. And there was the walk between Venice Beach and the little houses there, and he could see the ocean, and he was living the life of a 20-something on Venice Beach receiving the cocaine from Carlos Slater. I think and he complained way- he wasn't getting paid enough by Carlos, right? That was part of his complaint uh, at the all, trial? They all bitched and moaned about that. But what happened was, here's, here's the, the great story that comes out of it. And Carlos, I apologize for telling this story. But in any event, in any event, Jung would receive a phone call from later. And later would say to him something like, tomorrow at six o'clock. That was the signal for Jung to go to an airport hotel, rent a room, call Carlos and tell him what room he was in and wait for the knock at the door. And that's what Jung would do. The knock on the door would come, he'd open the door and there would be two gorgeous young women, each with two suitcases in their hands. Now remember, there was no airport security in these days. There were no machines to go through. All the luggage was checked. It was never inspected. So the girls would check the suitcases, pick them up at LAX, bring them to the hotel and standing there at the door. And John would say, come on in. They would come in, drop the suitcases. A good time would be had by all for several hours. And then, and then he, John would give them two suitcases each to carry back loaded with cash. And this would go on and on. Every month or so, these drugs would be shipped. The money would be shipped. That's one day the knock comes on the door and Jung opens the door. And there is Carlos Later's mother. Oh, no. Standing at the door. Now, Jung had met Later's mother either in Danbury, where he was in jail with Later, or at La Pacota in Bogota. I don't remember which. But he had met Later's mother. He knew her. And they were in jail together. That's how they met later in Jung. And uh, what are you doing here, Mrs. Later? And she, according to Jung's testimony, I'm quoting from the public record here. According to Jung's testimony, she says to him, I was visiting Carlito in Miami Beach. And I told him I wanted to go to Disneyland. He said, sure, mom, go to Disneyland. <laughs> Take a couple but of everybody's got to work. <laughs> everybody's got to work. And there she is with two suitcases. Needless to say, Carlos Slater was not happy that this anecdote made its way into his federal criminal trial. I can imagine. And, and so how do you cross on that? Uh, it's very, you, you tread very lightly. 
with that. I, I actually, David, don't remember how we crossed on that, but I do remember that Mrs. Later appeared in Jacksonville as we were getting ready to start the defense to testify that this never happened. And Jose and I get a call that she's in a hotel in downtown Jacksonville and we should come and see her. Of course, we're going to come and see her. We have to prep her, right? So we go there. I think it was a Sunday night before she was supposed to testify on Monday morning. Jose and I get in our car. We lived about 15, 20 miles outside of downtown Jacksonville. We drive into downtown. We go to see her. She's got two big burly bodyguards with her, and she kicks them out. And she speaks only Spanish, and she starts to talk to Jose. And the bottom line is she says to Jose, look, I'm going to testify for you guys. I'll say what you want me to say, but you should know one thing. It happened. Oh, no. <laughs> so you guys obviously don't call her. You walk out. We can't, we can't call her. And right. even worse, we have to break that news to Carlos. Oh, oh that's, that's tough. It that's did tough. not make him happy. No, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, there, there were other crazy witnesses in the case, too. Um, I heard Walter Cronkite was a, was a government witness in the case. Oh, this was, part, this was a big part of Merkel's show. And uh, he called Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite was a sailor. His avocation or hobby was sailing. And as he told the story on the witness stand, as I remember it, every year for years, he would sail in and, and, and moor his boat in the little harbor there at Norman's Key and spend a couple days in that area and then sail off on the rest of his vacation. And one year he sails in and these three uh, burly guards with machine guns over their shoulders come to the edge of the water and force him out. He, that's what he testified to. That was it. Uh, that I was mean, the sum to, they just wanted to, get had to call him. Of course, they wanted to get Cronkite on the stand, right? Yes, and Merkel got to say at the end of his direct examination what I was going to say at the end of my cross, but he headed me off. Is that the way it is? <laughs> right. And Cronkite, his famous sign-off every day, and that's the way it is. Of course. Um, and so what, what? do you cross the guy or you don't even cross him? I did, I did cross him, essentially, essentially to show that he had no idea. Right. Uh, who those people worked for or what was going on. He could not add anything to that. And then I, I sort of through him ridiculed the show aspects of calling him to the witness stand. Yeah. That it was that it was purely a matter of show. There were no selfies back then, but if there were after court, <laughs> you could take a selfie with Cronkite. You know, that would have been a big part of it. Yeah, I would like to have had that on my mantle or something. <laughs> right. right. The, or at the office. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I was looking at the closing. I mean, Merkel, you know, I guess to his namesake, makes it pretty personal. He goes after you. He goes after later. He goes after Jose. He says uh, about later that Carlos later hid behind money, his private armies. But for those things, he was just an empty suit. He also compared later to uh, Henry Ford. He said, Later and Henry Ford have a lot in common. Ford pioneered the automobile for mass consumption by the American people. Carlos later pioneered the transportation of cocaine. I mean, you know, way over the top. That's true. That was that was vintage Merkel. Yeah. And then I saw yours. I mean, you know, you guys go after the 29 snitches, of course. And and you you punch back even at Merkel and say that 
you know, during the coffee breaks, he was preparing these 29 snitches. Um, what's the story there? Did you catch him uh, with with uh, some of the witnesses during the breaks? I, I guess so. I, I don't remember one. Of, but one of the things I, I do remember uh, is that uh, uh, every night we would get the the list of snitches and other witnesses that they're calling to the witness stand the next day. And the court had ordered Mercorell. He never would have even given us some, this list the night before. You know, in federal court, you don't get witness lists. So the court had forced him to give us at least overnight to know who was coming. How generous. The next day, right? To, to prepare overnight for these people. <laughs> how, how generous. And so, and so he would give us this list and we go over it with later. By the way, later has sent me an email telling me I can speak freely about this case. So he, he would give us this list and later would say to us, that man's not coming in here tomorrow. He didn't have a second pair of underwear when he met me. <laughs> same, same thing virtually every night. And the next morning, the courtroom doors would break open wide and the witness would walk in with a brand new suit. From Sears. <laughs> right. And I would say, I guess the Department of Justice took care of that underwear for you, yeah, Carlo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they can offer something even better. The, the guy's liberty, too. That's exactly right. Uh, so, so what's this about the, the say no to drugs week during jury deliberations? <laughs> well, I, 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 Jose and, always re, uh, and I always remarked after the case was over how impeccable our timing was in the case. Uh, the jury was given the case for deliberation on the first day of say no to drugs week. <laughs> not, not good timing, Ed. <laughs> we, our, our timing was perfect. Oh. And, <laughs> and the, the jury was driven to the courthouse every day by a bus that picked them up in a secret parking lot. We never knew where this parking lot was. And they would, they would be driven to the courthouse every day in this bus. And there was a bridge that they had to come across. And the bridge was festooned with say no to drugs banners <laughs> and everything else for that week festooned that they were sequestered for that week but i don't know i'm pretty sure they went back and forth across that bridge every night <laughs> I, I always laughed at you know the federal courthouse here here in miami the the cafe back in the day was called the law enforcement cafe and i was like how can you name the cafe where the jury goes the law enforcement cafe <laughs> seems a little over the top um it, were there any jury notes that were of note during their uh, deliberations uh, funny that you should ask that question. There were no jury notes, despite, I think it was eight days of silent jury deliberations until the very end when the jury foreman sent out a note. And of course, you know, the rules are the note has to be shared with the parties. And so the judge calls us into court, comes on the bench and says, we have our first note from the jury and he passes out a copy of the note and we open it up and it says we have reached a verdict but must i sign my name <laughs> oh god not, not a good sign not a, not good, a good sign <laughs> <laughs> no um and but it took him a long time i mean the government must have been nervous over those eight days with no well, notes no nothing if, if nothing else, I think we made him, we made him a bit nervous. We, we, did, we did punch back and made whatever arguments we could make after seven months of hearing their evidence and no evidence really on our side. But we did the best we could. 
In- interestingly, Ed, on a case like this, you would expect the person to get life in prison because of the the number of drugs and the amount and the leadership and everything else. But but because of eventually Colombia and the United States passed an extradition treaty that say, actually, there's a debate about whether it was actually passed or not, but but the government, the U.S. lives by it, and, and the most somebody can get is 30 years. So, so later has been released. No, that's not what happened, David. Oh, tell me. Tell me what happened. Remember, there was no extradition treaty. Right. So there was no statutory or treaty limitation on later sentence. He was okay. sentenced to life plus 55 years consecutive. He was convicted of continuing criminal enterprise which carried a minimum mandatory 10 years to life, no parole, he got life. So how does he get out? Cooperation. He testified Ah. against Noriega. Ah. I had had nothing to do with that. Um, It was was done by some other lawyer. I don't remember, I think it was a lawyer out of West Palm, a female lawyer, I don't even remember her name. I only know what I read about it. Uh, I know what I that I read in the paper that that he testified at the trial of uh, Manuel Noriega, and his testimony was supposedly very pivotal in that case. And then I have learned more recently, essentially from talking to Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman, Alfred Spellman, that the government really went out of their way to make sure they honored their agreement with later to reduce his sentence. And he he got out. I think he's in his 70s and he's out and he's living as a free man right now. Amazing. So I didn't realize that that he was released on cooperation. So the government was was willing to use the top drug dealer that they had caught, I guess, to catch an even bigger fish. Has there ever been morality in the government's plea bargaining to get person A to go against person Z? I've never, I've never really thought there was any real hierarchy in the matter. It's pure. It was purely a matter of what conviction is in front of them next, and how do we get it? <laughs> we could talk about that for the next uh, couple of days, I guess. It's, it's true. Um, the federal system is built on snitching, and then using those to snitch on the next, and snitching it's on disgusting. the next. Disgusting. And how it always stop has it? been disgusting. Pardon my French, but that's exactly what goes on. And until you're a United States senator and get indicted for corruption and realize that that's what goes on, nobody ever tries to do anything about it. And, and the reason it's so disgusting, just so, so people understand it, is because everybody knows they're lying. I mean, even if there's some truth to what they say, everybody knows that to save your, your liberty, you're, you'll do whatever you have to do. That's exactly right. The hyperbole that comes out in those testimonies is overwhelming. And frankly, it provides people like you and me the opportunities we have to make inroads on the cross-examinations because we, we, we are trained and uh, effective at showing where they lie. That's the skill of trying a federal case. Well, Ed, this was so much fun. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you about this case and about the twists and turns. And, and it's amazing to to go back uh, even, I, like you say, when I talk about a trial, even a couple of weeks after, I've forgotten so much. So it's amazing how much you remember from this case in the 80s. It, uh, I've forgotten more than I remember, as I said, David, but there were so many experiences and anecdotes that just never leave you in a, in a case like this. And, 
And, and that's just one of the many wonderful cases I've had in, in my career that, that, that I look back on and I think about uh, with some frequency. Well, it's why we do criminal defense instead of probate, right? You don't get the good stories from, there's no podcast about probate law. We get to do this stuff because, I mean, it, you, the stories and the, and the fun and the people we meet and the other criminal defense lawyers, there's really nothing like it. There's nothing like it. I tell people, uh, David, that I have the most difficult profession in the law, but also the most wonderful and the most interesting end of the law. And my friends who are not criminal lawyers beg me to tell my stories. They love my stories. You know, a lot of people won't have lunch with me because if you go out to lunch with Ed Shohat, people say, you're in trouble. What are you having lunch with Ed Shohat for? But there are others who take me to lunch just to hear the stories. Well, I hope uh, you send them this podcast and they listen because these were some great stories. And I'm, I'm uh, thrilled that I've gotten to work with you over the last couple of years. So thank you, Ed, very much. David, I've always been extremely impressed and learned a tremendous amount from you. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks. That was a really fun episode. Ed is the best. What a great storyteller. What a great lawyer. What a great person he is. I'm, uh, I'm lucky to call him a friend. I want to thank all of you for listening to season four. It's been so interesting for me to speak to these lawyers. I want to thank, of course, Ed for doing this episode. I also want to thank Bruce Rogo, Mark Garagos, Juanita Brooks, Jerry Goldstein, Jeffrey Feiger, Brian Heberlig, and John Gleason for participating in season four. It's been such a well-rounded, fascinating group of lawyers talking about their cases and their careers, and I'm really appreciative. I've learned a lot. Uh, For those Florida lawyers who want the CLE code for season four, you get eight credits. Uh, Just type in For the Defense with David O. Marcus season four. The code is 211-073-4N. Again, 211-073-4N. You get eight general credits. You also get one ethics credit and one technology credit. So that's pretty cool. Uh, If we want to do season five, which I'm working on now, I really need your help in spreading the word, in getting uh, lots of reviews out there and getting more listeners. That's really key to these podcasts. So I would appreciate it if you could do so. Please email me your suggestions for season five for lawyers uh, and also for anything you think we should be doing in the show next season. Again, I want to thank all of you for listening and thank the guests for season four. Finally, I want to thank Alfred and Cliff for their support and for helping me with the tech side and with the production of the show. Again, my name is David Oscar Marcus, and this is For the Defense.